holidays, our grandson, who was almost two, was here visiting. And so uh, while he was here, we took him to the Lego store. If you've ever been there, it's really quite the impressive place. And, and they had an area where kids could just play with the Legos. And so he was there. He's pretty young, but, but he's enjoying playing with those. It was a great time until all of a sudden he tried to take a Lego from a slightly older girl who was very intense in her Legoing. And she screamed at him, and we ran for our lives. But, but our time was cut short because of that disastrous moment. But, but it's really an amazing place where you can buy these Lego sets at a considerable cost, and you take these sets home, and, and with the guide instructions that are given, you can really build, if you're a decent builder, incredible things. I mean, it really is remarkable, all the various sets that you can buy and build. But I think most people eventually have fun setting aside the instructions. Maybe say, okay, I did build that, but now I want to build what I want to build. And so you make whatever you desire. And so you build it, and then you might undo part of it and reshape it and build it and reshape it until eventually you make exactly what only you want. Whatever your heart desires. In our society today, we face a question, and that is whether our bodies are something like that. Can we reshape our bodies to be whatever we desire? The implications of this question play out in many ways of our society and our personal lives. So we face questions like, how how do we relate wisely and lovingly with your neighbor who identifies as transgender? How do you live within the policies on your campus or your workplace when it comes to an issue like preferred pronouns? How should we think about policies of local public schools and how they address this topic with very young children? If you're a parent or you aspire to be a parent, how do we guide our children today? And so for some of you today, it is much more personal than that. For some of you here today, find yourselves, even now, wrestling with your own body. Wrestling with the question of gender. But I want you to know that we're so glad that you're here today. And we care about you. I recognize that it's very likely I'll say something this morning that will seem or be hurtful to you. But I just want to say at the outset, that's not my intention. But we do want to welcome you, love you, if you'll allow us walk with you, and, and hopefully be a means of hope and encouragement to you. As we all know, this is a topic where there is much pain and controversy and confusion. So in order to try to be helpful, we look to the text this morning on the topic of gender. But the sermon today is for us. I'm not trying to preach to the whole world. I'm not trying to preach about those people out there, but preach to us, this local congregation, at this place, in this time. And so today we're in the third week of a five-week series that we've been calling Embodied. First week, we saw created persons. Last week, worshiping persons. Today, we'll see gendered persons. Next week, littlest persons. And then the last week, dying persons. 
after the series, then we'll return to 1 Samuel. No controversy, straight ahead. As I've said, the goal of these sermons is not to be political, not to be controversial, but to try to provide some help for all of us. There's no way, however long this sermon may be, and it may be long, that could ever be exhaustive on this topic. So if you have questions, as you have questions, I welcome those. I'd be happy to talk with you. If something is hurtful or something isn't clear or you want to push back on something, I would love to arrange a time to talk with you. So you can email me directly, Curtis at HopeFellowshipChurch.org. You can use the Connect card as well and note that also. So you have a Bible. We're going to be the book of Genesis this morning. Today we'll be in Genesis 1. And you can find it on page 1 in the Bible near you. So Genesis 1 on page 1, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to open up the Bible in some way so you can see the passage in front of you so you see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 1. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 26. We'll work our way through the end of chapter 2. And if you don't personally own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a sign that says free Bibles. So following the service, please just stop by there, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. Now, Genesis 1 begins with this beautiful, sweeping, poetic picture of a glorious God who creates everything that exists. The sun, the stars, the planets, the plants, the animals. And then we come to our passage, starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. 
name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Dilium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This morning as we look at our passage, we'll see this emphasis. You were carefully created by God to live wisely and faithfully as an image-bearing, embodied person, and that includes your gender. You were carefully created by God to live wisely and faithfully as an image-bearing, embodied person, and that includes your gender. We'll look at our text under these three headings. So first we'll see creation. Second, we'll see brokenness. And third, hope. So creation, brokenness, and hope. So first we see creation. We were with us two, two weeks ago. We looked at this passage then, so we won't go as in-depth today. But in our text, we see that God created humans in chapter 1, verse 26. The Bible is making clear from its very first page, there is this powerful, sovereign, creating God. And making clear that all humans were created in the image of God. All the animals were created by God, but only humans were created in his image or likeness. Image or likeness refer to something that is similar to, but not identical to the thing that it represents. So to be created in the image, the likeness of God, means that in some way or ways, humans are similar to God. In some way or ways, humans represent God in the world. So we are morally accountable beings. We have an inner conscience. We have intelligence. We have a will. We have the potential for deep interpersonal relationships. We have the capacity to relate to God. The fact that all humans are created in the image of God means that every person has worth, has dignity, has significance. Female and male, poor and rich, educated and uneducated, every ethnicity, young and old, healthy and unhealthy, born and unborn, all have worth and dignity. As friend, whether ever anyone has ever told you this or not, you... By virtue of the fact that you were created in the image of God, you have value, worth, dignity. So we see God's design for a person 
for people to be bearers of his image and to do so with real physical bodies. We see this in Genesis 2 where we're given a picture of this creating work of God from a different angle. We see in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So God formed the physical body, but he's not yet a person until the Lord breathed into him life, gave him a spirit and a soul. So we speak of humans as being embodied. Every person has a physical, a material body, and every person has an immaterial spirit, soul. And the person is both of those. Both of those are foundationally, absolutely a part of who we are. Sam Albury, in his very helpful book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, writes this. We can't properly understand who we are apart from our body. Your body is not other than you. It is not just a receptacle for you. It is you. In the Bible, it's not just that you have a body. You are a body. So to be an embodied person means that we are our body. It's an integral part of who we are. And as God created humans, in his image, he also created them male and female. So we see in chapter 1, verse 27. So in creating humans in his image, it includes this qualification of his design, that the bearers of his image would either be male or female. We see in chapter 1, verse 28, that these image bearers were to multiply, to reproduce, be fruitful and multiply, and then join in this vocation of stewarding the ordered world. If you're listening, when we came to chapter 2, verse 18, we see that something was not good in the garden after Adam was created, which it sticks out because again and again across uh, the first two chapters of Genesis, we hear again and again, it was good. The Lord said it was good. It was good. It was very good. And then all of a sudden, chapter 2, verse 18, he says something is not good. Look down at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we see that Adam was alone in the garden with no source of human companionship. And God says, it's not good. The scene then shifts and then all the animals are paraded before Adam. And the Lord delegates to Adam the authority to name the animals. So all the animals come by. Adam names them, but also something else results. Look down at chapter 2, verse 20. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So all these animals that have value to them go by, but none of them are fit for companionship with Adam. The man Adam needs another. He's not intended to exist alone, and he needs one who is fit for him, who corresponds to him. So the Lord causes a deep sleep to come over Adam. He takes one of Adam's ribs, and from that, he creates another embodied person. An embodied person created in the image of God is a woman who we call Eve. The woman Eve was then brought to Adam, and notice what he says. Look down at verse 23. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So Adam responds to the very existence of Eve with great joy. He's thrilled, no longer alone, but here's one fit for him. But notice his first words relate to how much she is like him. Not different than him, but how much she's alike. 
bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. All the animals were not like him. Here comes one, the only one who is like him. She's an image bearer, just like him. An embodied person, just like him. So you see here that among, between men and women, there are so many things in which we are very, very similar. And yet, although they're very similar, in so many ways, there's also a difference. In fact, there are notable differences, in particular, in their bodies. They have different sexual organs that are necessary in order for them to be joined together and be one flesh. Their bodies need to correspond to one another, not be identical, in order they might carry out the mission of multiplying and filling the earth. From this, then, we see the very first marriage. They would hold fast to one another. By these corresponding bodies, become one flesh. They're joined in sexual intimacy. They then give the pattern for all future marriages. We want to take note of the fact that in Genesis 1, the language we see is of male and female. But the language shifts in Genesis 2, to man and woman. The implication of this is that the person's biological sex, male or female, reveals, or we could say determines, their gender, man or woman. And the biblically, the two are connected, that they're inseparable. They both are connected to the other. We see here in God's good design in the original that God originally designed two biological sexes, man and woman. There's not more than that, nor do we see here a spectrum, but these two, a binary, man and woman. So we see creation. But then second, we see brokenness. The story, of course, does not end in Genesis 2, but sin enters the world in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve willfully rebel against God's design. They sin against God, and because of the sin and death into the world. Death was not immediate for Adam and Eve and God's grace, but it did become inevitable for Adam and Eve and all of us who come after them. The ramifications of sin, one of those is that we all will die. We refer to their sin as the fall, and from their fall comes consequences for all of us since then. We sometimes refer to that as the curse that remains over all. So that all humans are now separated from God. All humans now need a Savior to save us from our own sin and rebellion. And the fall and its consequences impact every area of life in this world. And that includes these physical bodies that we have. But even though everyone's body Every person is impacted by the fall, still the image of God remains in every person. The fall does not remove that. Though we're marred by the fall, still every individual continues to be made in the image, the likeness of God. Now we speak of how sin impacts all of us, how it impacts our bodies. I want to be clear in our own minds that we're not saying it's because of that individual person's sin, but because of sin that now has changed the world. So for instance, this this person who has this disease, we say it's because of sin. We don't mean their sin. She doesn't have cancer because of her sin, but because sin has marred the world. 
impacting all of creation. And that manifests itself in any number of ways, so many different ways in different people and in our bodies. So that condition, that disease, the suffering we face is a result of sin, but not their personal sin. So we always want to keep that clear in our own head for the sake of others, but also for yourself. So you don't think this is some sort of judgment on God because of your own sins, because we live in this sin-marred world. So each and every one of us have these bodies that were made by God, but also are broken. And this brokenness shows up in countless ways. Disease, sickness, parts of our body that never function as they should or stop functioning as they should. Some parts of our bodies were perhaps designed differently than others. This brokenness shows up not just in outward physical ways, but also sometimes in the functioning of our brains as well. And one of the manifestations of this brokenness is in this area of gender. It's area referred to as gender dysphoria, which is defined by the American Psychiatric Association as a marked incongruence between one's experience expressed gender and assigned gender of at least six months duration. So in this situation, a person is typically saying that they believe, they understand, or they feel that their gender identity is different from their body. So this person is biologically male, but they're saying that they think of themselves, they feel like they understand themselves to be female. In this, they're facing gender dysphoria. Transgender is defined as noting or relating to a person whose gender identity does not correspond to that person's biological sex assigned at birth. Friends, there's no question that that experience is profoundly painful for any person who has to endure it. That particular form of brokenness is devastating. Apostle Paul helps us in Romans 8 as he talks about how all of us, our bodies groan because of this brokenness. As we experience different forms of it, our, our bodies long for our deliverance from it. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, Paul says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul tells us that all of creation has, is under enduring futility. And now all of creation, including our bodies, groan. For our bodies know this is not what we were intended for. Our bodies long for healing, for health, for restoration bodies wait a day when they might be renewed. So we see brokenness. But then third, we also see hope. Now, I've looked at Genesis. You might be thinking, but okay, that's Genesis, but what about Jesus? Does Jesus talk about the topic of gender? If so, what does he say? Well, in fact, he does. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, some religious authorities came to Jesus asking him about divorce. But in order to answer their question about divorce, he takes them to the covenant of marriage. And to answer, related to the covenant of marriage, Jesus takes them back to the very first marriage 
Genesis 2, and even all the way back to Genesis 1. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here Jesus reaffirms the existence of the male-female binary. It's original in creation, and it's now the very basis for the covenant of marriage. So Jesus is saying that biblical marriage is grounded in the two corresponding, sexually different persons, a man and a woman, together in marriage. But if you are to keep reading in Matthew 19, Jesus then goes on to speak of a unique group that was facing great difficulty and pain in the world of that day, a group that we call eunuchs. And Jesus speaks of them and says that some were made eunuchs by men. So often this would happen based on someone's vocation. So if they were working, for instance, in the inner circle of a king or an emperor, they would be made eunuchs, their, their sexual organs removed, so that there would be no way that they could ever... Uh, have sexual interaction with any of the king's women. So this would happen at the hands of men. Some are made eunuchs. But Jesus also said there are some who are born eunuchs. So they're born in a way where their body is unable to carry out sexual functions in the way that normally would happen. So notice in Matthew 19, Jesus reasserts the binary, male and female, but it also helps us to see that in this world there are complexities that are experienced, brokenness that manifests itself and that impacts individuals' experiences. And the Bible tells us that the reality of sin and its consequences have a dramatic effect on every part of humanity, on every person, on our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And Jesus here helps us see that as he introduces the eunuchs in our text. In the beginning, and continuing since the beginning, God created them male and female. And that continues to be the case today. But there are some small cases of exceptional circumstances. And one primary exception is a range of condition that falls under the term often used of intersex. Some use the phrase disorder of sex development or difference in sex development. It's an umbrella term that covers a wide range of variations. One author says it this way, intersex is a general term for a variety of physical conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. The variations in sex characteristics may include chromosomes, gonads, or genitals that do not allow an individual to be distinctly identified as male or female. That's important. We don't confuse intersex with transgender, for those are not the same thing. Author Von Roberts says it this way, transgender is not the same as intersex. Intersex is a physical condition affecting people whose chromosomes, genitals, and gonads do not allow them to be distinctly identified as male or female at birth. By contrast, transgender has to do with how people think and feel. Sometimes people try to blur those two together, but they're not the same. And friend, it made me do that this idea of intersex sex is very new to you. I would encourage you to do some research, to do some reading about this topic. 
And we as a church want to be a place who would welcome and, and love people who might find themselves living in a condition like intersex, to care for them faithfully and well. Author Rob Smith says this way, in Matthew 19, does not answer every question we have about sexual phenomenon of intersex people. This was not the focus of what Jesus was teaching about in this passage. But it shows us perhaps what we most need to know. To those whose biological reality is painful and confusing, Jesus gets it. He sees it. He expects, it, he expects this to be the case for some people in a broken and fallen world. The biological complexity some might face is part of the bodily brokenness that all of us have to reckon with in one way or another. Jesus also helps us see that there is an eternal future for our bodies, and in that eternal future, our bodies will continue to be sexed, male or female. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into this world and he took on flesh. And as he walked this world, he was living as a, a man. People saw him, they touched him, they heard him. Jesus ultimately went to the cross. He died, was buried, and raised on the third day. And he was raised with this resurrection body. This body that did have resemblance to what he looked like before, but was also distinctively different in so many different ways. And yet that was very different Powerfully resurrected, Jesus was still a man when raised. And Jesus, who reigns today, continues in that same body. So will be for us, friends. The hope of the Christian is that there's a day coming when we'll no longer live in these broken bodies. And the image of what our body will be like is Jesus' resurrection body. We're promised one day we will have a body like his, no more brokenness, no more disease, no more suffering, and no more sin. So we will have this transformed body, but this transformed body will continue to be male and female in the life to come. Now around the room this morning, we, we could list such a wide array of challenges and struggles, brokenness and pain related to your bodies, our bodies related to our minds and struggles that we have. But friends, we want to trust that God is at work, not outside of our bodies, not in spite of our bodies, but through the very body that you have. It's not an accident that any of us have the body that we have. All of us have pain, struggles, disappointments confusion that arise within our bodies, physically and psychologically. But friend, God is at work in your body. The body you have is the one that God intended you to have. And friends, hear this. God is not absent from you. As you endure great struggles with your body and with your mind. Now, he's at work in us even as our bodies grow even as we eagerly long for a day when our bodies will be completely renewed. We might ask, but so is there any hope, therefore, for these sin-marred bodies? Is there any relief for us? And the good news is that, yes, there is, because Jesus came. And because Jesus took on flesh. And he walked the earth, lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he joyfully chose to go to the cross and die on the cross, his body 
broken in our place. He bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He died, was buried, and raised in his body on the third day in order that he might provide salvation as a free gift to any and all who receive it by faith. Salvation that he provides brings transformation. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, this is the story of salvation, transformation. We're not who we once were. We're changed. But this transformation is not complete yet. It continues day by day, year by year, by God's grace. We're being changed more and more to be like Christ. But there is a day coming when Christ returns, when finally this transformation will be complete. We will then have these new resurrected bodies. We'll no longer have to fight sin nor suffering then. But until then, this transformation is continuing in our lives. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I understand this is a really strange Sunday to be in church. We're glad that you're here. We really count it a privilege you would give, come here on a really cold winter day. If you're not a regular attendant of church, I would just say we don't normally always talk about really controversial topics. But friend, what we most want you to know today is of this gracious Savior who came to rescue sinners like us, who laid down his body for us, that we might be made new through so that's what I most want you to consider this morning. If you'd like to know more, I'd be happy to talk with you. Or if you came with a friend or a family member and they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you as well. And friends, for those who are Christians, our Savior knows life in a body like ours. He experienced hunger and exhaustion. He experienced great physical pain. He endured the death of his body. So friend, who better to comfort us perfect Savior? Who better to help us endure? Friend, there's nothing you will ever face in your body where Christ isn't with you to comfort you, to give peace to you, to strengthen you, so we can have hope because of that today. In light of all this, as Christians, we're, we're not shocked the many forms of pain and brokenness in the world. We don't despair at we do mourn it. We care about people. God cares about people, so we mourn the various forms of brokenness, suffering in our world. So when people experience gender dysphoria, we mourn with them. We, we long for a day when that will no longer be a part of their experience. According to the scriptures, we, we think that we are thoroughly male and female, both sex and gender, from beginning to end. And we also don't think we have the freedom to work against the grain of God's good design. If the scriptures are clear that this is God's good design, then for us to try to change that from some outside means, surgery, other medical means, would be, we believe, to try to do the medically impossible and especially so with children and with adolescents. So as Christians, we mourn and we care. And sometimes we're, we're called to sound a caution. 
So much of this has only happened in very recent human history. If you're probably older than about 30, a lot of this feels very, very new. Because it is. Across the vast majority of human history, the the thought has always been that sex and gender are united as one. So the idea that there could be separation is just in recent decades. And up until very recently, the experience of uh, transgender has almost exclusively known by men. But in recent years, that has shifted dramatically. So statistically, it's experienced far more by women, and especially by girls and teenagers. And so when we think about that, we have to wonder, well, what is going on? What has caused this? What, what almost seems like a, a contagion that's spreading so rapidly. And yet in the face of this, we have to admit that there is no scientific evidence that there is, for instance, a male brain. Someone tried to make the argument that, that a person has a male brain in a female body, so that's why to transition would be the right choice. There's no evidence that there is such a thing as a, a male brain or a female brain. And there's surprisingly little research or science behind the practices, the treatments, the surgeries that are so frequently being recommended for teens, for children. Now, is it unloving for a person to not join in encouraging people down the path of embracing transgenderism? Well, certainly can be expressed in an unloving way. And we don't want to be that. We should never be that. But if we care about our neighbor and they're attempting to change something about themselves that actually isn't possible and they're harming themselves, then it can be the most loving thing to actually sound a caution. It does seem, though, that there's such a cultural wave going in one direction that to even ask questions about or to have discussion seems mean-spirited or risky. I confess, even as I've thought about preaching this sermon, it certainly felt a little bit more risky than the average sermon. Numerous times I thought, maybe this is just a bad idea, and we'll see. Maybe it was. That's yet to be determined. But see, I think that there are some issues where we do want to try to think faithfully and biblically. But you might ask, well, is it only Christians who are urging caution on this? The fact is, it's not at all only Christians. There are many people who don't share the same faith, but who are speaking to this as well. For instance, a woman by the name of Abigail Schreier, who's not a Christian, has written a very significant book called Irresistible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. It's a very well-researched, exacting book, zeroing in on, in particular, how girls, teenage girls, have been impacted by this. There's also an increasing number of physicians and psychiatrists who are raising concerns, especially about how adolescent girls are being encouraged to try to transition genders. A group of American pediatricians made this statement. Young children are being permanently sterilized and surgically maimed under the guise of treating a condition that would otherwise resolve in over 80% of them, this is criminal, they say. In Europe, an increasing number of countries are changing some of their treatments and practices that they were, they were trying or now deciding perhaps the research actually wasn't there. We're seeing how destructive some of these can be. 
we typically are people, in particular in Boston, who say that we'll follow the science. But the science shows that actually the sex nature of who we are goes all the way down to the cellular level. And then, in fact, we, we could change the outward appearance of a person, but we actually can't change what we are at the chromosomal level. A dominant view in our culture seems to be like that of Legos, as I started with. That we really can sort of reorganize parts of our body, and that can be for our good. An author by the name of John Wyatt says that actually the Christian worldview is different than that. It's more like the practice of art restoration. In art restoration, let's say there's a masterpiece, but it's time and weathering has affected this masterpiece. Well, what does a faithful restorer do? He doesn't go and change the artwork. He doesn't try to upgrade it and say, well, there's some trees in this, but I think it would be helped if I added a few more trees. I'm just trying to understand what was the original intent of the art, and I want to restore it back to that. Not change the content of it, but restore it as best we can to its original intention. So it is for the Christian who believes there is a design to the human body. And though marred by this fallen world, we're for medical care. Where that medical care is bringing healing and trying to restore to the original design but not going beyond the very design that was given to us. As we head to the end this morning, I want to share just a little bit of what I, I hope is godly wisdom. Now, the, most of this will, will arrive from um, a lot of reading and thought of my own, but you'll have to use discernment and whether this is actually right wisdom or not. Right? There's something that will say, this is what the text is saying. Here's what I'm saying. I think as a pastor this is wise, but these are not thus says the Lord. One, I would just say, if you're finding yourself hurting, experiencing great pain because this is your experience, I just again want to say to you, we want to care for you. And to whatever extent you'd be willing, we would love to listen to you, try to bear this pain with you, and to walk with you, we would hope, for future health. For we as Christians, seeking to live wisely and lovingly and well in the church and in the world, one, we want to walk in love and in grace and in truth. All of those are essential. Not one or the other, not only truth without love, but love and grace and truth. In order to do that, we will see all that we encounter as neighbors. And the scriptures tell us that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So every person you encounter this week, every person you encounter across your life are made in the image of God. They have value and dignity, and they're your neighbor who you are to love. So we are to love all that we encounter. And we can and should mourn and lament the pain and brokenness in our world that our neighbors are experiencing, including the devastating pain of gender dysphoria. We mourn with them out of love. We also want to seek to understand. If you have a friend, a coworker, a family member who's facing this and they're willing to share with you about this, friend, that's a great deal of trust for them to share. So let us please listen. 
Listen carefully. Listen and keep listening. Hold our tongues. That we might really try to understand this friend. Maybe even try to use your imagine to imagine just what the pain is like that they are enduring. Put yourself in their shoes. We must have real compassion and empathy. And the fact is there is a broader cultural discussion. There, there are very real ideologies at work. But as you're trying to love a particular person, they may not know anything about these particular ideologies. So don't argue at this level. Try to love this person. Show compassion and care. Listen to this person. Understand and hear what they're saying. We will all be helped if we seek to be informed, to think about this issue. If you'd like to read more about it, on our book table right up here, there are a couple of books that are available. One, a book called Transgender by Vaughn Roberts, a very short, I think very helpful book. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Secular Creed, has a chapter on it. So both those are available. They're $5 each. If you don't have $5, please just take that with you. Another helpful book I would come into is called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies by Sam Albury. I had ordered it for the book table. Uh, Amazon informed me it was destroyed on the way here. That would make a great uh, sort of, you know, uh, you know, crazy story of like they're against us. I think it just got destroyed. So they'll be here tomorrow. There's no conspiracy theory about Amazon. They were destroyed. They'll be here tomorrow. We'll have them next week. So if you'd like a copy of it, I'm sorry they didn't get here this week. Somewhere online, they got destroyed. But I commend seeking to be informed. And as you're trying to be informed, it might be helpful just to, to think about some questions. Consider things like, do we really want to be a society that encourages adolescents who are often confused and struggling as most adolescents are, but a society that encourages them to make life-altering decisions for surgery at such a young age. Is that wise? There are those and many other questions I think are just worth wrestling with. And of course, friends, there must never be mocking or joking from us toward others. I assume that would go without saying, but in our society, you just never know. And for the person we care about, if this person who's telling you, if they're not a Christian, friend, their greatest need, like all of us, is for a Savior, Jesus. So might you love them, listen to them, seek to in time sow seeds of the gospel, that one day they might come to a real saving faith. They might be transformed by Jesus. And we do want to think clearly about what's going on spiritually Individuals who experience gender dysphoria are not sinning in those experiences. Unwanted psychological pain and distress is not sin. So a person is not choosing to have this feeling. They don't desire this distress. So that in of itself is not sinful. But when a person then says, I will be the authority over my body. I will reject God's design. And I'm saying I can now do this to my body that will undermine actually who I was created by God to be. Then we are sinning as we take on an authority that we just don't have under God's care. 
Another thing that we all want to be alert to in this is we should all be very, very careful about the power and our use of gender stereotypes. Those are a massive part of this situation where very often someone says, I'm biologically male, but I feel like a woman. And then they might go on to say things like, I've always loved art. I love to dance. I don't love climbing and guns. And so therefore, I think I'm a female. And sadly, from a very young age, they've been told that. As for instance, as a little boy, he said, I love pink. And people in his life said, little boys don't like pink. Girls like pink. Boys like blue. Those are stereotypes. There's nothing in creation nor in the Bible that says it must be so. And so very often that this struggle is they're struggling against a stereotype. So we want to be careful that we're not enforcing stereotypes that have no biblical basis for them. Now, every culture has stereotypes. They exist everywhere. But they're different of what a male and female is in different parts of the world, which shows the, the lack of substance of these stereotypes. But so as we're around children and teenagers, be careful that we're not imposing stereotypes on them that might lead to confusion to them, especially when they're operating outside of what you think a stereotype may, might be for a boy or a girl. But we can gladly celebrate the beauty, uniqueness, the difference of children, of adolescents. A few things for parents or those who hope to be parents. Obviously, be alert. Try to be alert to what's going on with your kids. Try to know who the influences are. If your children are in school, seek to know what the school is teaching on this topic. And if they at some point begin to share with you a struggle they're having in this area, please just start by listening. Don't panic. Listen. Show compassion. Show care. Be careful yourself of promoting stereotypes among your kids. And especially if they start to embrace them, then even like doubly reinforce them can be a temptation for parents. Many adolescents have significant struggles. So don't be shocked when your kids have struggles. If confusion does continue, absolutely to seek professional help is a good thing. It's a wise and godly thing would also urge you to limit your child's access to social media. The thread that runs through, in particular, girls and adolescent girls, the drastic shift is social media. There are powerful images out there that seem much more substantial than anything you or I will say to your daughters, to your sons. So I'd say be very, very careful, slow, to give to your children a phone, to give access to social media. Now, I'm much older than most of you, but I'm a dad. And believe it or not, though it's been a while, our kids did, phone was a question then. Not so much smartphones, but it still was a challenge when everybody else has a phone to say, no, you can't have a phone. We're going to wait to have a phone. 
Parents, I'm not telling you, this is not a thus saith the Lord. I just say as a friend, as a pastor, be slow, be careful. If you have to, blame it on the pastor. Just say, Pastor Curtis said. But social media is so powerful and so accessible. As parents, continue to know that you have authority. So as long as the kids are in your home, you do have authority over them. So don't overwhelm them with it, but also don't give it away. There's also a way for us to sound a caution in society. So you may have an opportunity to speak in a local school or to a local community policy. Some of you may need to work in law and in medicine and to give us some good thinking on these topics because we care about our neighbors. We don't want to see them destroy their bodies. We especially want to care for children and teenagers. What about when work requires something that is contrary to your conscience? And you may face that, and you may have faced the question, am I willing to lose my job? That's a reality that some will face. What about the use of preferred pronouns? It's, it's a matter of Christian freedom. Scriptures don't speak to it specifically. So these are just some of my thoughts as they stand today. I'd say, if it's someone you don't know really well at all, as best you can tell, they're not a Christian, and they give you preferred pronouns. I think, in general, you can just use their name, and you don't have to use pronouns. But if you had to use a pronoun, this person is not a Christian, you don't know them well, I think there is room that you could use their pronouns out of love and care for them. And some of you would say, I don't think you should ever do that. That's a reasonable, I think, godly choice as well. I think if you're a parent and in your home, your kids want to, you to use different pronouns, I think out of love, you might say, my conscience binds me on this, and I'm trying to guide and care for you. So out of love for you, but also staying true to my conscience, I, I won't. I'm not willing to do that. But it's a tough topic, a changing one. It's a, one that's worth talking with other Christians about as well. Friends, together as a church, we want to be a church that welcomes with love and compassion. We want to be a place where strugglers can come and be and cared for. So let's seek to be informed, to understand. Let's be a place who, who welcomes families and children who find themselves with an intersex condition. Let's welcome and love and serve families, individuals who are wrestling with gender dysphoria. By the grace of God, he will empower us by his spirit and give us strength to do that. It will not be easy. It is costly will be risky. But friends, there is good news in Christ, the good news of transformation. And so let's rest in that and pray that God would help us to be a light in our city.